Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. Jay Foreman left Boca Raton for Hong Kong in mid-December. New U.S. tariffs were set to be slapped on the toys his company imports into the United States. Toys like Tonka trucks, Lincoln Logs, and Light Bright Classic. The Trump administration did not go through with those tariffs just a day before Foreman arrived. There were mass anti-government protests on the streets of Hong Kong while he was there, and by the time Foreman left to come back home to Florida, concerns about the coronavirus from mainland China were beginning to build. So we really went from tariffs to protests of the coronavirus. It's just been unbelievable. Foreman's company is called Basic Fun. It makes 90% of its toys in China, and it spent much of last year bracing for the impact of what had been an escalating trade war between the United States and China. As those tensions have cooled somewhat, the coronavirus has brought new worries about how interconnected the global economy is and the economic threats posed by the virus. Now, the first concern is public health, followed by the financial vulnerabilities because of the outbreak and fears of it widely spreading. Last week, the stock market experienced its worst week since the Great Recession, and forecasts for economic growth were being reduced. All of this is having an effect on Florida's economy, and it could continue. This is certainly a concern, but it's not anything to panic about at this point. That was Jerry Parrish in a video message emailed around last week. Parrish is the chief economist at the Florida Chamber of Commerce. He pointed to four industries in Florida most vulnerable to the outbreak, including the import-export industry, cruise ships, and international tourism. Florida hosts more international visitors than any other state except New York. Florida enjoyed more than 14 million visitors from other countries last year. Those visitors stay longer and spend more, and they contribute lots of state and local tax dollars to Florida. Amy Baker knows this like few others. She has a long job title in Tallahassee. Coordinator of the Legislative Office of Economic and Demographic Research. She's often thought of as the state's chief economist. She's responsible for coming up with the economic and financial forecasts state lawmakers then use to forge the state budget. The Florida Department of Health is monitoring dozens of people for COVID-19, the official name of the coronavirus. Baker and her staff have begun their own work, the economic work, to better understand what risks it may pose to the state's biggest industries. Florida's definitely a part of the global economy. We're a part of the national economy. So we're very closely what, watching what's happening with everyone else. Um, because it will have spillover effects back to us. So in that sense, we're, we're not unique. We're just one of many trading partners. We're one of many states, but um, we won't be isolated from it. So we'll, we'll be following the rest of them as they go through this too. So we're working on that. But a, a second piece that we're focusing on is Within the state of Florida, what kind of impacts could we expect to see? And is there any place we have particular vulnerabilities or any place that we're particularly strong that we need to take into account? And we kind of approach that like a hurricane. So we've had, a, unfortunately, a lot of experience over 
um, this decade and all the way back to 2004, 2005, with knowing how hurricanes affect the state and what kind of damage it does in terms of businesses, business closures, you know, when can things reopen? So we're bringing a lot of that knowledge into building a new model. And so this model will be specific to dealing with the coronavirus and its effects, but there's elements that are very similar. That uh, similarity with preparation for a storm has been used by local officials here in South Florida as kind of a a, um, a reflection of uh, how the community and how public safety officials think about it. So it's interesting to hear from a financial and economic side. That's also a starting point. Uh, What are the similarities when thinking through financial economic implications of this virus? And what are some of the differences that you anticipate could be out there? Well, one thing you you can face, depending on where a hurricane hits and and what kind of damage it does, are supply disruptions. Um, you know, where a port may be affected or uh, cargo shipments into the state could be affected. So there, to the coronavirus, there's definitely an element that's coming from supply chain disruptions. So we want to think about that and incorporate that into our model. Um, we know whenever you have a natural disaster or in Florida, even Zika, that you can see spillover effects back to tourism. So that's another piece we would definitely be building into our model, both international tourists that might not be traveling as much into Florida, but also our Floridians in, to the extent that they don't leave the state but stay in the state. Um, and then there's a piece of it that's related to just business disruptions that we have in, in our disaster model that would fit in here as well. We know that uh, at least initially, voluntarily, people might be a little less comfortable being out in large crowds um, and large group events. So they may stay at home more. They may cook at home more. And so they may change their behavioral patterns a little bit. In a natural disaster that's forced, um, you, you have no choice but to be in your house during the disaster and maybe for some period afterwards. But um, at least voluntarily, we may see some of that with this as well. Large focus on hospitality and tourism, I imagine, right? And the tax dollars, especially that that industry generates for local as well as state governments, given we are over 100 million visitors a year. Is that is that the most vulnerable piece of the Florida economy when it comes to the uncertainties around the virus? We've actually been super focused on tourism for a number of years now. When we came out of the the Great Recession in Florida, one of the quickest industries to recover was our tourism industry. And it not only recovered, it went into a very explosive growth period. So for the last few years, what we've known is our very, very strong tourism, that outside market has been offsetting any remaining weakness in our economy related to the Great Recession. For example, our new construction 
in Florida didn't hasn't yet picked back up to where it was before. So what we saw at the end of the day is that the super strength in tourism was offsetting the weaknesses elsewhere so that we were able to say overall we were back to normal much quicker than we otherwise would have been. So we've been watching it very carefully. We know because it's so strong, it's also a source of vulnerability to us. So whether it's a hurricane, whether it was Zika, um, you know, when we went through that, or or now with the coronavirus and its effect and from other countries into the, this country, we're we're definitely watching that very carefully. We need it to stay strong um, and to have kind of the outsized role it's playing, at least for the next year or so. Amy, your work is looking at the Florida economy, but really geared toward the uh, economy as it relates to state revenues, uh, tax revenues, licensing revenues, stamp documentary revenues, and those types of things. Uh, What are the questions that you and your staff are asking about those revenues as we're in the final throes of the legislative session, of course, settling on a budget at the same time where uh, there's this pretty significant uh, but yet undefined threat. We're doing a lot of risk modeling right now, and that's why we're building the model at all, frankly, is is to see under different scenarios what would be the spillover effect on the state's revenue sources and how, you know, to what extent is that it's definitely creating more risk to our forecast. It's riskier now than it was. But it, to what extent can we quantify that risk and what is the level of danger, if any, that we're looking at from from a revenue standpoint? So most of what we talked about is related to sales taxes. Sales taxes are our number one revenue for the state of Florida. That is the most important revenue source we have. And it is... Uh, significantly funded, um, depending on the year and what we're looking at, up to 14% of our sales taxes are, are related to our tourism industry. So that's why we're looking at this and why we're so focused on it is to try to determine what is our level of threat. The good news for Florida is that our, ever since the Great Recession, um, started easing and abating a little bit. Our legislature has made a concerted attempt um, to build up the state's reserves. So we've been leaving a billion dollars or more every year behind when we build the state budget. And so that's unallocated money available for emergencies. Meantime, kind of in the foreground of all this is the current economic condition of Florida. You alluded to the strength in tourism, certainly. Uh, We've seen trade, uh, real estate, uh, residential home prices, at least here in South Florida, continue to hold up. Uh, What is the general state of the economy as it uh, faces this unknown threat from the virus? A lot of our measures have gone back to their prior peaks before the Great Recession and have even moved beyond those. So we have some very strong areas of the economy. Before before the uh, coronavirus even became 
you know, anything on anyone's radar. We, we had foreseen some slowing in the economy as we go forward. It wasn't uh, going to go negative. We weren't predicting a recession, but we had seen that things were going to slow, you know, as we moved forward through 2020 and the 2021. And we had built all of that into our forecast. So it was still, you know, still good. It was just taking a little bit of a breather. Speaking with the head of Florida's Office of Economic and Demographic Research, the state's chief economist, Amy Baker, from her office in Tallahassee. Still to come as our program continues, the coronavirus could cost the cruise ship business hundreds of millions of dollars in lost profits. These are businesses that are very important to our local economy, and this costs them a lot of money. We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and look for a podcast of this program on your podcast platform. Just search Sunshine Economy. The Diamond Princess cruise ship may be thousands of miles away from the headquarters of its parent company in Doral, but it has been a focus for health officials following the spread of the coronavirus. A passenger tested positive for the virus a month ago after leaving the ship in Hong Kong. When the ship returned to Japan, thousands of passengers and crew were kept on board by Japanese health officials. The quarantine was lifted after two weeks. Over 700 passengers and crew were infected, and Japanese health officials have been criticized for their handling of the outbreak. The virus has led to the cancellations of dozens of cruises in Asia for the Miami-based cruise companies, Carnival Corporation, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian Cruise Line. Each of the three companies have warned the missed cruises will cost them hundreds of millions of dollars in missed profits this year. I spoke with the Miami Herald's business editor, Jane Wooldridge. She's also the president of the Society of American Travel Writers. Jane, welcome back to WLRN. How has the cruise industry handled the outbreak so far, do you think? Well, I actually think they're doing quite a good job. It's a very difficult scenario. Um, Behind the scenes, what people don't see is that they have operations scrambling to reroute cruise itineraries, um, get passengers updated on the latest restrictions and um, and monitoring scenarios, allay fears. Um, there's a lot that goes on. I spoke this morning with um, uh, someone who's heading on a long cruise in the um, that's a part of a world cruise, and he said, well, we're getting new information every day about screening procedures and where you've been recently and whether or not you're allowed to come on board. So I think the cruise lines are actually responding admirably. They're very good at dealing with crises. They have to deal with hurricanes and other things. Um, I think one of the things that people may not know and was not clear until we started doing our own reporting was that in the situation of the ship, the princess ship that was held in port in Japan, Mm -hmm. the cruise line had no um, official role once that ship moved into Japan. And while there has been some criticism of the Japanese and how they handled some things, I do know that they did an extraordinary job of seeing that people on board had the medicines um, that they needed. 
you think about it, you go on vacation and perhaps you take an extra few days of whatever your medicine right. is. N extra few weeks, not so much. And so I do know that the Japanese were very engaged in, um, you know, trying to make sure that people have what they needed. Yeah, there were pictures of how medical professionals in Japan had taken over the dining room, for instance, and turned it into a pharmacy for the thousands of people on board that ship. As you mentioned, the industry is no stranger to uh, emergencies, mostly weather emergencies, of course, here in the Caribbean out of Port Miami and Port Everglades. Um, but it's also no stranger to infectious diseases breaking out on board. How has it handled them in the past? And are any of those lessons applicable here? The way they've handled them in the past, and that's been primarily no norovirus, is they have sequestered people uh, in their cabins who show signs of norovirus, and they are very proactive about their cleaning. Um, I'd like to point out that I have had norovirus, and I got it at an industry conference on land. <laughs> so um, it's not a cruise ship disease. I, they have a good record with this. What they seem to be doing in this current scenario regarding coronavirus is learning from um, what they've learned about sanitizing and sort of doing a, a you know sanitization on steroids program. And then, of course, the screening is the um, essential thing. It's worth pointing out, and this isn't really a consumer um, topic, but it is a Miami topic, that these are businesses that are very important to our local economy, and this costs them a lot of yeah. money. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how vulnerable is the South Florida-based business, cruise capital of the world, Port Everglades and Port Miami? Well, there are two sides to that question. One is, will people be afraid to travel overall, and therefore we won't be getting the ancillary business that we get here in South Florida from people who come for cruises, which is to say an extra night in a hotel, the taxi spend, that kind of thing. So travel overall, if it slows, then that would be a direct impact here. For the cruise lines themselves, they've already indicated in some of their um, public statements that this is going to cost them money, um, will hit the bottom line when it comes to profitability. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be profitable or anything like that. But what it does mean is they will make less profit. And that's um, important to all of us because these are big corporate players in our community. Big employers. Uh, Huge employers. Yeah, yeah, thousands and thousands of people, and many of those employees having stock or stock options. And as you know, with the route in the stock market, some of these travel companies, hospitality companies, have suffered more losses than even the market. Well, certainly cruising has, and that's not really a surprise. The good news, bad news, is that everybody knows cruising. So when there is a problem and it affects one ship, the mental um, stretch for most consumers is, oh, that could affect all ships. That may or may not be true. Um, it's like thinking that a disease is simply a, a cruise ship disease. I don't know statistically whether a cruise ship is any more vulnerable than any other closed environment, but the cruise lines will take it on the chin in terms of profitability, and their stocks have been routed. There's certainly uh, questions around the broad vulnerability and the, the 
kind of public messaging, as you mentioned, uh, and the reputation. But it, it has been Asia-focused, where focus of the virus has been, certainly, and uh, with the cruise ships that have found themselves affected by the virus have been Asia-based. What about the Asian-based business for the, the carnivals, the, uh, uh, the Norwegian, the cruise companies based here? Well, many of the companies based here have a high profile in Asia. Um, it varies by company, and certainly their Asian business is being heavily, heavily affected. What exactly that means, um, we won't know until they make public statements because most of these are public companies. But um, they have all talked about or made announcements about rerouting out of Asia for the current moment. There has been impact here in the Caribbean. Just uh, this week, a MSC ship was turned away from several ports in the Caribbean because they had a crew member, that particular ship had a crew member on board who had flu-like symptoms. That crew member was tested, and it was not coronavirus. It was the regular flu. And I think in this moment of concern, one of the things we forget is that the regular flu um, unfortunately kills a lot of people every year and generally more people than in the mortality rate of coronavirus. So uh, while the concern is certainly understandable and um, at my house we're washing our hands feverishly at every opportunity, we still need to understand that the single biggest risk anybody has of serious injury or death when traveling is in a car accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, those are good reminders, and especially in particular to the kind of run-of-the-mill influenza, which uh, affects thousands and thousands of, of, uh, of people every year. Back to the, the vulnerabilities of the cruise industry as the news around the virus continues, uh, what could be the impact on pricing in the summer months in the Caribbean, which is, you know, an important part of that Miami-based cruise industry business. Well, I suspect it will actually be good news for consumers who are looking for a deal. Um, typically, in anywhere in the travel industry, when a destination has a problem, when a sector has a problem, what happens is then occupancy rolls down and they have to incentivize sales. That has not been the preferred methodology for the cruise lines in recent years where they've tried to do what's called value added, which is they keep the base price the same, but they give you some extras like drink packages or onboard spa services or some other um, amenity at a discounted or zero price. Um, what really happens to the cruise lines themselves, you know, that's all internal math for them, but it's not good news. And they have been adding and growing, uh, building new ships, big, big, big ships to utilize here in the U.S. market, the European market, and of course, increasingly in the Asian market. And as you know, Jane, those are multi-year, multi-billion dollar plans. Yes, they are. And they, of course, roll out. Um, it takes uh, roughly three years to build a cruise ship. And while it is a big investment that is already made in most cases, and there are, a, a, you know, at any given moment these days, there are usually a half dozen to a dozen ships on order across all the fleets um, worldwide. Those 
one of the things that I think it's easy for us to not realize as South Floridians, you know, cruising here is so much part of our lives. Yeah, yeah. And we see those ships every time we go across a causeway that we kind of forget that cruising actually is a fairly small percentage of all travel uh, vacations. They would love it to be a higher percentage of travel vacations, but in fact, it usually um, is no more than 5%. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point, right? Because when you hear from the Carnivals and the Norwegians and the uh, the other cruise companies here, they talk about that very important new-to-cruise audience, right, to grow uh, the the population that's new to cruising and to get that obviously then into a return customer. Uh, are there vulnerabilities here with the virus to well, that new to cruise? There, there always are. And that is, in fact, where the greatest vulnerability is. The One of the enviable stats or, or you know, scenarios for cruise lines is that once people take a cruise, they tend to return. They have the one of the highest return rates of any product on the planet. What it is, however, sometimes more difficult for it to get that first-time cruiser on board. And usually when there is any kind of a concern around health, safety, or anything else, it's the new-to-cruise market that usually takes the hit because those people aren't yet, you know, experienced the product and realize that, for instance, you can get sick anywhere um, on any kind of vacation. And so it's the new to cruise that is generally the most vulnerable anytime there's a crisis. Speaking with the Miami Herald's business editor, Jane Woldridge. Still to come, the Chinese influence on the American manufacturing for a Boca Raton-based toy company. Even our U.S. manufacturing is being hamstrung by the supply chain disruption in China. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting Public Radio. Jay Foreman is no stranger to China and the global supply chain. He runs Basic Fun, based in Boca Raton. It imports toys like My Little Pony Classic and Pound Puppies from China. A dozen employees for the firm work in China, 65 work in Hong Kong. Foreman was on the ground in Hong Kong in mid-December, just as one threat to his business was eliminated. For months, he'd been preparing for a 15% tariff on toys made in China and imported into the United States. But the Trump administration canceled the tariff just days before Foreman landed in Hong Kong. He left then a month later in mid-January, coming back to Florida, just as worries about the coronavirus began growing. And since returning to Florida, he has turned into an exporter of sorts, shipping over 6,000 of the N95 respirator face masks to his Chinese employees. So we sent them over a, 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 a number of loads of masks. So they had them not only for themselves, but their families and even to pass on some of our vendors, plus hand sanitizers. About 90 percent of Basic Fund's toys come from China. None of the companies it contracts with to make its toys are in the epicenter of the outbreak in China. But Foreman does not know how the quarantines and limits on travel in China are going to impact workers at the plants in the weeks ahead. Foreman says this is the slow time for toy making, so he's not too concerned about his toy supplies just yet. Because February is is almost a zero ship month for us, 
we haven't had an impact, but we're now going into March. And, and certainly if the workers aren't back in the factory, our production is going to be disrupted in the month of March. Now, March is typically our second or third slowest shipping month of the year. So really when we'll start to feel the effects is if we don't really see the workers returning to the factory during the month of March and the ramp up starting in April, then we'll begin to get a little bit concerned that our supply chain is going to be disrupted in a, in a more significant way. So the coming month is very significant for Foreman and the outlook for his company for the rest of this calendar year. The toys that show up in stores and online for the holidays would normally be made in the spring in China, put onto cargo ships over the summer across the Pacific, and then to make it to store shelves and warehouses in the United States in time. Foreman was opposed to the Trump tariffs on Chinese-made toys, but he now says the threat did lead to a decision that may limit the supply uncertainty caused by the coronavirus outbreak. We actually accelerated a lot of our spring shipments to try to get them in before the tariffs hit. When the tariffs didn't hit, that was good news that our that our uh, prices weren't were not going to be increased by 15 percent. But the bad news was we had all this inventory. Oh my God, what are we going to do with all this inventory? Um, well, now that we're going to lose a couple months of shipping, that inventory really has value. So we're hoping to be able to fill the gap uh, with with some of the inventory we brought in early. But there certainly will be an interruption. In, in what we supply. And you'll see the shelves at stores in March and April in particular, a little, potentially a little less full than they usually were because you know, there's no doubt there's going to be an interruption in, in shipments for, for you know, two, four, six weeks. And that includes the toys American companies make for basic fun, like its Connects line. Connects are kits of rods and connectors for kids to put together into different objects and shapes. The Connects parts interconnect with each other. It's a tangible representation of the global trade that makes them possible. 80-85% of the Connects parts are manufactured in the United States. The product is assembled in the United States. But 15% of the parts come from China. So even our U.S. manufacturing is being hamstrung by the supply chain disruption in China. And this is a, an issue where we're kind of interdependent, even when the majority of the production is done in the U.S., China and other markets still have an effect. You know, they used to say, probably still do, when, when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. But now we're really finding out when China sneezes, not only does the world catch a cold, but actually the world may come down with an epidemic. And it just shows how important the interconnectivity of, of the world is from a global trade standpoint. You have been in this business for quite some time. You have uh, traveled uh, to and around China for a good number of years. You've operated under a lot of different uh, types of challenges in the toy business. Uh, manufacturing issues, tariff issues. How do you how do you explain this particular challenge at this moment in terms of the the kind of the the economic threat posed by this public health concern? Right. So I, I mean, this is as critical as any issue. You know, you you mentioned we we went through all those with the tariffs. Nine eleven was a big event. We had a big uh, safety concern where maybe it was about 10 or 12 years ago, there was some lead paint found on some toys and there was a whole sort of quasi safety uh, crisis and the financial uh, crisis was big. 
this is something really completely different because this is this is kind of like a financial crisis, a 9-11 and a trade war in a sense all at the same time. If we remember when 9-11 happened, you know, really global travel, you know, kind of grinded to a halt. Um, people were really par paranoid and paralyzed uh, for a while trying to figure out what was happening. And we're starting to see that. In fact, just two days ago, I got a call from American Airlines who told me that my April 15th flight to Hong Kong was canceled. So they're canceling flights. People are locking down borders. It, it's, it's really something quite strange. And then, of course, whether it was a trade war, a um, financial crisis or 9-11, people were still working. Factories were moving. Goods were flowing. But we have a situation right now where in, 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 in the kind of world's workshop, which is China, um, factories are not working. Sh sh you know, trucks are not flowing. Ships are not sailing. Speaking with Jay Foreman via Skype from his office at Toy Importer Basic Fun in Boca Raton. Now, still to come, Asia has not been a big source of foreign buyers of South Florida real estate, but... The indirect impact of the stock market pulling back in financial markets has created some psychological impacts that, that have given people some pause. Back on the Sunshine Economy, I'm Tom Hudson. Today, talking about how vulnerable South Florida's economy may be to the threat of COVID-19, the coronavirus. Thanks for listening. While South Florida is the top real estate target for foreign buyers, it's buyers from Buenos Aires, Bogota, or even Boston who are more influential than those from Beijing. Danny Hertzberg is a real estate agent with the Jill Zeter Group at Caldwell Banker. We spoke with him via Skype. Danny, thanks for joining us here on the Sunshine Economy. How vulnerable is the South Florida housing market to a global virus? Pretty much every major market has a large international component. Um, so Miami absolutely does. We've been more reliant on the Central and South American buyers. So in terms of the coronavirus, um, at least at this moment, we're seeing the biggest impact in Asia now through Italy. Um, so it hasn't been a direct impact, but the indirect impact of the stock market pulling back in financial markets has created some psychological impacts that, that have given people some pause. Yeah, there's that psychological vulnerability of pulling back from all kinds of investments, waiting for the reality of the virus to kind of be learned, um, but also just the, the financial fear that's certainly gripped markets across the world, right? The financial markets aren't always, you know, directly in sync with the individual real estate markets. But overall, um, when people see that their, you know, their stock holdings are down, they're sometimes less willing to make those purchases. When you talk about foreign buyers, um, uh, one kind of barometer of that is is the cash market, right? The number of buyers right. that are buying in cash. And in Miami-Dade County in January, it was a third of all home sales. In Broward County, it was 41%. In Palm Beach County, it was almost half of all home sales were in cash. A big indication of foreign buying. Are you seeing some levels of concern? 
So we have one of the highest percentages in the country, Miami, in cash transactions. Um, but it's actually decreased a bit from if we look back three, four, five years ago. And that's, that trend of pullback of international buyers you know, has been existing. It's possible that there's a further decrease, but we haven't had that yet. Uh, so really, it started three years ago, four years ago, when we saw a major pullback uh, from Brazil, Venezuela, Argentina, the strong dollar, the weakness of some of those economies. There was a shift from you know, majority international to more domestic buyers. But it's possible as travel is restricted, um, there is more of a pullback from the international markets. But I would say it's already existing trend. What we're really getting now is tax flight from New York, California, all the high tax states. So that's been a big movement to Miami. And that's made up some of the, uh, you know, some of the pullback from the international markets. Are there implications in the the middle part of the market, um, the even $200,000 to $400,000 price range for homes and condominiums uh, where longtime residents uh, or first-time home buyers are looking? Listen, there, there could be implications at all price points. Typically, the, the entry level, you know, middle of the market, the two, three, four, five hundred thousand, it's not buying second and third homes. People are buying because the job changed. They were renting and it's time to buy family formation. They're kind of reasons that aren't often postponed. Um, however, if people feel that, you know, the financial markets are in turmoil, the consumer confidence goes down. And as a result, people buy less goods and they, they may purchase less properties. The flip side of that is that interest rates are going down. So it might bring some people off the sidelines or make up for some of that concern about the coronavirus spread. Uh, my gut is that it's not going to impact the middle market, the lower price points, which are pretty healthy um, and less reliant on the international markets. Danny, you make a good point for folks who are living and working and making their you know, lives and families here in South Florida who may have a mortgage, rock bottom borrowing for those uh, with the credit that can get it. And that makes a big difference. It's, it's how much they can afford. It's the price point they're going to go to. And it might be the difference of waiting another year or purchasing now to lock in a low rate. Speaking with real estate agent Danny Hertzberg via Skype. Still to come... The story of an economist here in South Florida who grew up near where the coronavirus outbreak began and how he works to find balance between fear and facts. This kind of fear, this kind of having to deal with the unknown factor of this new thing, that can make people scale back their decisions. That's still to come. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Usually at this time, we bring you financial statements, stories of money and the price of life in South Florida. But this week is a little different. Worries about the coronavirus have gripped global financial markets, and some economists are predicting very little economic growth early this year because of the outbreak. Shango has a unique perspective. He's an economist who has taught at FIU since 2008. He's from the region in China where the outbreak began and still has family there. We spoke with him via Skype from his home in Weston about his family in China, the economic forces at play, and how he balances his personal worries with his professional work. My name is Sheng Guo. 
I am a uh, instructor of economics at uh, Florida International U- University, and I grew up in uh, Incheng, China, which is a small city 45 miles from Wuhan, Hubei province. My parents are still living there, uh, as well as my uh, grandma, and I have relatives and friends living there. Since like January uh, 22, 23rd, uh, my parents have been quarantined in their apartment. Every household can only be allowed to go out shopping once every three days with a special pass from the neighborhood uh, uh, residential committee. It has been 28 days, more than 28 days, and then they are embracing for a another 40, 14 days quarantine. I mainly communicate with them uh, through WeChat, uh, the um, chat app on iPhone that are used primarily by Chinese. And uh, once a couple of weeks, I would uh, video communicate with them through WeChat as well. Usually I would uh, communicate with them uh, in my uh, bedroom or in my home office at my home uh, in Western Florida. I would ask them like, do you have enough food? Uh, What kind of food do you get? And uh, uh, are your friends, are they still okay? And how many cases of confirmed uh, patients are are in your neighborhood? Things like that. It's kind of, uh, it made my heart heavy to say the least. Because you have this outbreak that is very nearby from my uh, parents' living place, um, and I have to monitor the news uh, every day in order to grasp what is going on there. You know, they, they stayed in their apartment, they couldn't go out, so they, not, they do not necessarily have all the information as we have right now from a, a distance. You know, sometimes it's very depressing uh, because the, the news can become so scary that I, I don't want to monitor it anymore. But because of them, I have to stick with it uh, because they are living there. My parents are in uh, some sense are in a, a good situation because uh, they are already retired. Uh, I'm the only child of my family. So uh, they only need to feed themselves, only two people. Their current situation is better than I would have expected. 
they can still get enough food, get enough green vegetables, get enough fruits through online purchase, and uh, these goods will be delivered to their neighborhoods during the night, and so they could go out and pick them up uh, during the night, and I can still see that they they have vegetables to eat, uh, even though they. Said that the price has,、uh, in some cases, has doubled. In the very beginning of the outbreak, the best、uh, public policy is to contain the outbreak. And that is also the best economic policy because you want to、uh, contain it as soon as possible, so everything can get back to normal. But in the medium and the long run, the best public policy, which is a quarantine and a lockdown, or you know,、uh, just give a testing of as many people as you can, may not be the best economic policy because it can cause the、uh, breakdown of People and the goods flow within the economy, and that will cause a problem for the economy. On a large scale, people like my parents cannot go out. They couldn't go to visit the parks, or go to the movie theaters, or participate in some public events, and that can cause the damage to those other sectors like、uh, tourism. Industries, or hotel hospitality industries, or entertainment industries. And those effects will be felt by by the people who work in those、uh, in those industries. In 2018,、uh, there are about 14 billion international visitors to Florida. And less than 300,000 were from China. So that's roughly 2% of all international visitors are from China. Based on these factors,、uh, the effects on the、uh, tourism industries due to the China outbreak will be、uh, quite small.、Uh, it's probably, I would say, less than 4% or so. But right now, we are looking at the outbreak. Elsewhere, like in、uh, Italy, in France, and even we find a、uh, confirmed case in Brazil. So I'm more worried about the outbreak that may possibly happen、uh, in Latin American countries. And we know that those countries have closer ties to Florida than、uh, China does. This kind of fear, this kind of having to deal with the unknown factor of this new thing, that can make people scale back their decisions. As an example, like my wife, who is supposed to attend a large academic conference next month、uh, to be held in Orlando, and now he's worried about, you know. From which countries are these attendees come from, and is there any kind of real risk、uh, of 
the uh, spreading of the virus due to the large gatherings of these uh, attendees. My wife, she is a faculty member in a business school of a Florida International University. She specializes in healthcare economics. My wife and I, we talk about it every day. I hope it can end some days because this is not something good for us to talk about. I hope it can end. Shen Go speaking with us via Skype from his home in Weston. He's an economics instructor at FIU. His parents and grandmother are still quarantined in their homes about 45 miles from Wuhan, China. Go says they have remained healthy. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Katie Lepre is our engagement producer. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.